If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsco, and my guest in this conversation is Carl Kuhnert. Carl's a professor at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where he is all about helping leaders to make their unique contributions to the world. He teaches leadership, organizational change, and professional ethics at Emory, the University of Georgia, UCLA, and HEC Paris. Before that, he did his undergrad work at Penn State and earned his PhD in industrial organizational psychology at Kansas State University. In addition to being one of the most loved professors at Emory, in 2000, he was awarded the Hammer Award from Vice President Al Gore for his outstanding contributions to the federal government, and he has served as a consultant and educator to many organizations around the world, including UPS, the U.S. Treasury Department, Siemens, the Jet Propulsion Lab at Caltech, the Federal Reserve, Federal Home Loan Bank, the Robert Wood Foundation, Carnival Cruise Line, ACOM, Farmers Insurance, the American Cancer Society, and on and on. You get the idea. This man has done a lot. Now, this is a conversation about the genius and the strength of vulnerability, the levels of development you go through as a leader, and how each of us can show up and actually live our values in order to keep evolving and give our authentic gifts. Now, I have to apologize. There were a few sound issues here. I think we've got them pretty much cleaned up. But with all of that, please enjoy Dr. Carl Kuhner. Carl, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, Andrew. How about you? Uh, awesome. I am so excited for this conversation. So right before we hit record, you started telling me a really good story <laughs> about Pope Francis. And I would love you to just pick well, up there. <laughs> this was... This was uh... In, in our conversation before we, we started here, I looked through and actually went and listened to a few of your podcasts. And um, the one that really caught my attention was uh, uh, Sam uh, Frankchen. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. Uh, the quote that you, that you led with there was, a faith not tested cannot be trusted. When I read that, uh, it really caught my attention because when, when Pope Francis, <laughs> in his first week, of being a pope, uh, actually brought in uh, a leading atheist from Europe, and uh, what a great what a great opening line in any book. And but but yet he he you know the, the interviewer was was keen enough to ask him like why did why did you bring an atheist in? Yeah, here first what's up with this? What's what's going on? He says it's very important for me to be regularly tested in my faith. Hmm. And it, no, no better time does he need to be tested, right? That when he's in his first week as, as being a pope. And so, uh, it's a great quote. And I thought it was a great uh, tribute to the, to the pope and, and the way he thought about his faith. That's a theme we're going to circle back to numerous times in this conversation <laughs> is, is the idea of, uh, how, how tests and challenge our formative experiences. But I actually wanted to start in, in a slightly different, uh, place. Yeah, sure. And I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about the influence that two people have had on your thinking, who I, I am also a big fan of, and that's Bob Keegan and Richard Rohr. Oh my gosh, my story actually starts out. Uh, this was probably twenty-five years ago, and um, I was I was playing tennis with a colleague, and um, he was um, uh, uh, beating me badly at some point and and I, I felt like I really needed to get some air <laughs> and I said what are you reading you're just like buying time I said so what are you reading and um, he says well I've got this interesting book uh, by Bob Keegan <laughs> The Evolving Self 
And I said, really? Tell me more about it. <laughs> Again, uh, buying time. Yeah, uh, go on. But, go, go on. Yeah, please tell me. Uh, uh, by the time we left, he had given me a copy of his book. And at that time, I was a really a brand new professor. And I was absolutely uh, drawn into the idea that um, as individuals, we grow uh, throughout adulthood. We don't stop. What's so interesting about that is that we've now got a lot of brain science and people have really come along to this idea that we don't stop growing when we're 18 or 19, that we continue to mature uh, throughout adulthood. Both Bob and um, Richard are uh, amazing at talking about that development. By the way, my, they're my two favorite writers. Well, I'm a big fan of those too. So I was introduced just for, for, uh, if longtime listeners of the show will recognize, recognize the title of this book, the, uh, in everyone culture and the idea of a deliberately developmental organization, which Bob Keegan was one of the, one of the lead authors of and just rocked my world. Like that was one of the things that just, it, de- you know, it just detonated my brain. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> and <laughs> like, I, I freaked out when I read this book. It's so good uh, for anyone yeah. who really cares about the conversation we're going to have today. Yeah. Uh, so I was so delighted when I saw that Bob Keegan was, was foundational in your work. I was like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, uh, it really, it really was foundational. It, you know what? Uh, we're still evolving, right? We're, I mean, we're still, we're still learning a lot about how we mature and grow as adults. I want to learn something here. So, cause you, you said that was really foundational for you. Right, so, so paint me the picture. You're in Kansas. You're basically finishing your PhD, but what, what exactly, where did this book find you and how did it change you? Yeah. Well, the, my problem was I was about to take my first job <laughs> at, uh, at Ohio State. The problem, uh, was that I was going to be teaching leadership. <laughs> and, okay. uh, I had just had a class in leadership and I'm not trying to put any aspersions on anyone, but it, it was boring. I mean, it was like, the, the books, everything I had read was like, I, I can't, I, I can't teach this. This is like, this, I can't even get through it as a reader. I can't read it, let alone how am I going to explain it and make it interesting to people? So that, th- that was it is that I had to find a new way. And in fact, in the evolving self, there isn't anything there about leadership, by the way. It, it was all about uh, counseling and uh, development more generally, developmental psychology, mm-hmm. but something really kicked in for me and saying, Hey, listen, this idea about growth and development applies directly to growing leaders and how we think about growing leaders and how we how we try to accelerate that development in the course of uh, a short period of time. Because we do ultimately grow. I mean, whether it's <laughs> uh, getting married, getting a divorce, having children, um, all of these are landmark events in our life that have a way of um, changing our perspective. For any of us who are in this conversation around leadership, growth, development, et cetera, what you just said is it's like, it's obvious, right? It's like breathing air. You're like, well, of course. Right. By the time I got into this conversation, this was already taken as a given. Why, why did this have to ever be explained? Like why, why was there ever a time when people didn't think this? Oh, uh, partly because we really didn't have the evidence for it. That's the truth. Hmm. Most of the research that has been done on, you know, like personality theory, for example, basically say that our, you know, our traits are given <laughs> birth. Okay. Right. And, and so, and so the idea, and then we had, we had controversies, you know, over that time having to do with intelligence testing and all this and how intelligence based, you don't get any smarter after 21, 22. Mm-hmm. And we really didn't have, um, 
the, the, the ability to do the kind of the brain imagery today mm-hmm. uh, that we do to see how our minds change. That research, I mean, I had these, I mean, I had these fights with my neuropsychologist friends when I first started out. Just not mm-hmm. all these structures, they're, they're in place. They don't change. They don't, they don't adapt. Right. And so, wow. And so again, what's happened is, is actually, uh, uh, the research has, has really caught up to us. Yeah, it's fascinating. The, 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 the renaissance that's happening right now, the explosion in cognitive science and, in brain imaging technology and neuroscience is truly incredible. Like I almost feel like if I was back in school, I would, I would study that instead. Uh, it's just super fascinating. It's, it's unbelievable. It really is. Authenticity is really at the core of your work. And it's sort of a journey to helping leaders connect with and develop who they authentically are and make their unique contribution, right? Contribute to the, in the, to the world in the way that only they can. But something about the etymology of that word was very interesting, about the etymology of the word authenticity. And you, you brought it up to me as something, something about accomplishment. Could you talk, to, talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. It was one of those, uh, one of those times when I decided, hey, listen, you know, I've been using this word <laughs> uh, in my classes, and I decided to actually look it up. Yeah, mm-hmm. just, let's, 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 get a, let's get the Oxford Dictionary out and look up authenticity. And one of the definitions absolutely struck me. Which, which was being authentic is, is actually one who accomplishes. Hmm. Right. And, and you think about that. And I, and I said, wow, you know, kind of relevant here from, from our own development is that you would be surprised at the number of people who never get around to doing what they're here to do. And, and a lot of people that I know that, that I've coached get so caught up in putting out fires daily. Uh, they never get around to doing it what they should have been doing, what was unique about them. And what happens is, is they end up never making the contribution that they, they could make. And, and by the way, that's, that's not like just a person. That's, that's, that's part of development mm-hmm. is getting to the place where, um, you know what, not getting invited to this picnic or this party is not the worst thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Set aside a lot of, uh, of those, um, irritants. Sometimes I like to call it noise, right? And so what happens is when we're younger, we get caught up in the noise. And we can live our life that in noise, by the way, and never get around to getting to the ground, which is which is who we are. I thought it was such a beautiful coincidence. So I'm I'm constantly reading and engaging with new material as part of this podcast and, and the learning journey that it is to, to do a show like this. And right before we or right as we were kind of getting ready for this conversation, I happened to be reading for the first time, um, Falling Upward by Richard Rohr. Hmm. And phenomenal book. And then I, I was just like, oh wow, that is so perfect as a as a setup for for talking with you. Um, but his idea that and I, I'd love for you to expand on this and how how it relates to what you do and what you see is is that like it's such an counterintuitive title, right? That idea of falling upward. Tell us a little bit. What does that mean, actually? Oh my gosh, I'll be short with this, but it's it's, it's a profound idea, and uh, I'll use his example. And so I'll, I'll ask you, <laughs> how is it that we ever learn to ride a bicycle? Fall off. You got to fall off. A lot. A lot. If our parents are actually with us at the time we're doing it, they usually like to take us to a beach where we don't hurt ourselves. But the bigger idea here is that we don't grow unless we fall. And his distinction, I love it, is it's not fail. A lot of little business literature goes, oh, oh you can fail and fail quickly. Fail. And, no, 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 no. No, you're not failing. You're falling forward. 
Mm. Right. Is that 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 error in judgment, that mistake, that poor decision is an opportunity for you to learn something about you and grow from that experience. That's the idea of falling forward. Love it. Yeah, it's it's so like when I read it, it's such a beautiful book. And by the way, I hope everyone like go check out that book. If if go you're read it, all please. yeah, go please go read that book. Everyone should read that book. Uh, it, it's it's you know he's a Franciscan monk, but it is not it's it's not a book about like Christianity or anything. It's it's really a book about the inner journey we all go on as humans, and it's particularly relevant for anyone who's aspiring to to be a leader and create things with other people. So um, I think it's a perfect kind of transition point because one of the things that our our good our our mutual good friend Muriel Clausen, uh, who's also Right. Yes. I love one of the things she she shared with me about you, which is one of your favorite sayings is that we are addicted to our own way of thinking. <laughs> oh. And it, it just seems so relevant because when I was getting ready for this conversation, I also found that one of your one of your favorite TV shows is Deadwood. And there's a line from that that you love, which is I am having a conversation that you cannot hear. So talk to me a little bit about that. What, what is that all about? I've, it took me a while to actually came, come up with this this way of, of thinking about how much in our conversations and in our dialogue with people, how much of that time do we spend trying to be right? I was trying to get this, this idea across that it's so important for us to kind of give up that right to be right. That I went with a metaphor of being addicted, mm-hmm. that we're so addicted to being right that any information that we take in, you know, uh, I heard this phrase and I loved it. It's called, he called it the epistemic closure, <laughs> a fancy name. That's a very fancy. What does that even mean? It's just that the way we come to understand things that we get locked into it. Okay. Right. We get locked yeah. into it. We're not right. Then someone else must be wrong. This is fundamentally the first half of life is that we spend so much of our time trying to prove ourselves. We basically, and this is, this is why I use the word addiction. We have to break that addiction. <laughs> mm-hmm. And everybody knows that to break an addiction, uh, you not only have to fail, but you have to fail badly or fall or fall. You absolutely have to be, you absolutely have to see yourself and others in a different way when you get challenged like that. And, and so for me, one of the, one of the ways that I think about development is, is that we have to have this challenging contradiction in our life and be open to it. And not spend all of our time defending our way. And I love this. I love this story. It's, it's a great story. And it was actually in a book called Practical Wisdom. And what they did, talked about this uh, hospital janitor named Luke. And uh, Luke basically cleaned the floors of hospital rooms. And there was there was this dad uh, who whose son... Uh, was in a coma, uh, in a, in a bicycle accident. And over time, Luke and the dad became pretty good friends. But what happened one afternoon is that the dad had actually gone out for a cigarette. And when he came back, uh, he had realized that Luke wasn't there, didn't show up. Hmm. And you know, that was what he was assuming that he didn't show up. And so the, the, the dad went out looking for, for Luke. And sure enough, he came across Luke and snapped at him. Hmm. And basically said, why didn't you clean the room? Hmm. Hmm. So 
the way to think about this is what does loop say? Now there are two, we call this, we'll call this being on the first mountain or the second mountain. Okay. And on the first mountain, Luke says, sir, what do you mean? I did clean the room. You were out smoking. Okay. Right. Which is defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. Hey, I, I was here. You weren't. Right. Well, Luke in that regard is more interested in building up his own ego and defending himself. There's another version of Luke. And at this point, Luke lives on a second mountain and basically understands that he's not there to clean floors. He's there to help families. He's there to make a contribution to the lives of others, not clean floors. And so what he does is he says, sorry that I missed you. Let me clean the room again. I can guarantee you someday Luke will be remembered for his contributions because they'll be numerous. He will not just be a great janitor, but he will be known as someone who made a contribution to the lives of others. So this is perfect. This idea, I love this idea of the two mountains. And that seems like kind of a, a nice metaphor to describe sort of the, the leadership development levels that are central and underlying your work. So I, let's, let's just really quick lay that foundation about what those levels are. So if you would talk to me about what are those, just so people have the frame. This is a developmental framework. It has a trajectory. I don't tend to put names to them, to these levels, what I call levels of adult development. We don't talk about uh, level one. Uh, because that's too low. That's basically um, a child's view of the world. But we, we we start here with level two. And and the way I like to think about this, and the, the way I think that most people can understand this if they have children, uh, this is your teenagers. It's all about them. Everything is about them. That's like living on the first mountain, is that what you're most concerned about is getting your way. What you're most concerned about is um, being right. Um, it's it's not even really recognized, and this is what's hard to understand, but it's almost like they don't even recognize the other, right? And what happens is you realize that when it's all about you 24-7, life doesn't treat you very well. Um, you start realizing, guess what? I'm not succeeding very well in my relationships. <laughs> uh, uh, I've, I've, you know, and, and what happens is that there's a lot of things around you that start stop working for you that worked really well when you were hmm, 18. But somehow at 24, or hopefully by the time you leave college, you realize uh, there's a bigger world out there. And I mean, I actually had a student one time. He said, I can tell you today that I moved from level two to level three. And I said, that's a great story. I'm going to hear it. Hmm. Yeah. And basically what it was, was uh, over the course of the year, he had three girlfriends. They all dumped him. I give him a lot of credit for having the courage to go back and ask them why he dumped them. Yeah, good for him. And it was not, it was funny because he goes, he goes to me, he goes, you know what, Carl? All three of them said the same thing. Why is it always about you? Right. Hmm. Yeah. Everything's about you. You know, so it was like they weren't having a relationship because it was all about it. So that's level two. Level three. Again, we see um, many more folks here. Uh, I would say probably as many as uh, two thirds of the population. It's important to point out that we're not at a particular level, by the way. We're always, for the most part, uh, this is on a continuum and we're actually moving between levels. What happens is we don't go from two to three. We go from two to 2.5, 2.8, three, eventually get in there. But then we have level three, which is where, um, you find a lot of people. 
where they actually get defined by the other. Hmm. That is, I'm only as good as you tell me I who I am, right? And I get my sense of who I am by how I think you view me. And so if you're my boss, Andrew, and I'm at level three, mm-hmm. I will do whatever it takes to let you know how great you are. Yeah, it's all about that external validation. It's all external validation. And what's important, though, is when I tell you how great you are, what I really want is for you to tell me how great I am. Mm-hmm. Right? The versions of this, though, are 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 many because uh, we could get our um, we could get our sense of ourselves. I mean, we start out getting our sense of ourselves from our parents. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to drop that. Then we then it's other people. Then it's other organizations. Uh, and what happens in the business world is that a lot of people get burned out at work. And the reason they get burned out is because they're doing everybody else's work and never doing their own work. Hmm. Because they get their satisfaction from doing other people's work. And so this can carry on. By the way, some people never leave level three. It seems like a lot of people, if I, if I remember correctly from my research, that one of the most common places that people, that you encounter people in, whether it's you're working with a company and leaders there or people in, you know, you teach in business schools, um, is really at that three to four transition, which is sort of that, yep. I think you've called it the effectiveness transition, but this is like, this is sort of like in the journey, as I understand it, this is like the key moment. It is, it is the transition. And again, uh, uh, as you said, most of the people I work with, most of the, the programs I do are people who are actually between three or four. And, and what happens is there's now this realization, by the way, because what you do at level three, by the way, if, if it's always, if, if someone else is responsible for what happened to you, right? Level three. Mm-hmm. Is that what you do is you like to blame other people. Yep. Right. And this cycle, by the way, we see this all the time in our culture, by the way. We see this. Who can we blame? Yep. Right. I mean, we have a legal system set up to find someone else responsible. Right. And so what happens is at level this move from three to four is to actually it's that move from blame to responsibility. Mm. And what happens is at level three, and I could just one of the one of the things that, I, that uh, we've learned over the past few years is that people actually catch themselves, um, you know, maybe that night say, you know, I should have said this. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I wish I would have done this. And and what that is, right, is you actually trying to get to four, <laughs> level mm. four, but you haven't quite got over that threshold. Right, where now you can be responsible uh, for outcomes. And for me, the hallmark of level four is being able to take more rather than less responsibility for things around you, including relationships. Mm. Everybody at work knows that there's some, pl- there's some people they would rather not see <laughs> and will go out of their way to avoid them. And and the difference here at level four is that what you're doing, what you're saying is that I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for this relationship. Now, I don't have to have them over for dinner, but I'm also responsible for this organization. And ignoring this person isn't helping us become better as an organization. And so at level four, the real difference is here is that you don't just have values. You can have values at level two and level three. But what, what's different here at level four is you don't just have values, you are those values. Mm. Integrity is not something that you have, it's something that you are. Mm-hmm. In the interviews I do, they're inspirational when I do these interviews with executives because they can tell me the times 
when they were in those kind of situations where they had to make this decision. Yeah. And making that decision, by the way, uh, grows us. So let's, let's just round out these levels. So there's one more level in, in this framework. So what, what's level five? Level five is actually um, owning your values, being those values, but actually open to change. You're open to hearing things that would maybe make your value, to coordinate your values with someone else's values. And so I actually like to think about this in terms of our, our really our greatest leaders. Mm. So if you think about it through this lens, right, of developmental lens, you know, when Abraham Lincoln said, said a house divided cannot stand, you see the hole in this, the hole here is the house, right? That was his metaphor. And level five leaders tend to see the hole in the situation they're in. They're not able, they're not just willing to take their side, but they're able to actually see the other side. Yeah, I think I've heard you describe it as a shift from from thinking about us to thinking about all of us. I had a general who said that to me. Uh, it stuck with me. Much, many of my interviews stick with me. By the way, uh, I've been very fortunate to be able to do these uh, what I call leader level interviews over the years. And and this particular general, I mean, he had told me that under his command there was over sixty uh, of his soldiers that, that that died. It was an amazing story because you know I. I I take, I have to take these risks you know, with some people and I want to take it with him. You know, you got to be careful about these interviews. And so I said, Oh, how do you, how do you deal with this? I would have a hard time dealing with it. And he says, he says, well, the most important thing for me to remember is that it's not, that it's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you. That phrase has been around, I don't know, probably for about a hundred years and different people have said it in different ways. But the way he said it to me in that context was so important because Oftentimes, and when I think about leaders, right, here's where leadership comes in, because we have stuff happens to us all the time, right? And some of it's, some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's really bad. But the, the real test of leadership is not what happens in you. It's how you deal with those circumstances. Mm. I tend to believe that we need more level five leaders if we're really going to make a difference. So it sounds like you sort of are, have taken a lot of, uh, you know, 50 years of research around human developmental psychology, basically, and uh, it, it sort of looked at it in, across these levels. Sort of level one is where a baby is. Level right. two is where, you know, basically it's all about me. It's kind of like what a, mil- what a typical middle schooler is looking at the world. Everything's very win-lose, you know, and then... By level three, it's like, okay, by level three, it's now I'm, I'm very externally defined. I'm chasing external validation. I'm, I'm sourcing myself. I'm trying to source myself externally. And yep. then the, the big shift is the three to four shift. Uh, cause most people are, most, most people that you come across are probably in level three. But at level four, suddenly it's the shift to kind of starting to take ownership and responsibility, not just for the circumstances, but for your role in creating them even when it's not something you did, right? Like, okay, it's, it's sort of owning your part in this situation. And then, um, it seems like level five then is really this much broader view where you're, you're not just living your values. You are also thinking holistically about everybody and how to make this all work for all of us in a, in a very holistic sense. Is that, am I tracking right? It's good. It's good. good. Thank you. Going back to, to Keegan, that's it's sort of this idea, like Keegan's idea of going from the, the socialized mind to the, I think he calls it the self-authoring mind to eventually the self-transforming mind, something like that. Perfect. That's exactly right. Yeah. And this idea of like increasing complexity of the self over time as we, as we evolve and, and grow. And I think his point there was like, don't, don't beat yourself up for the fact that you're at level three. It's a, it's a necessary step on the path. Ah, absolutely. 
Hey, and by the way, by the way, let me just say that if you can catch yourself saying, oh, that was so level three of me. <laughs> if you can catch yourself saying that, that's growth. Mm. Okay. That's how growth, that's how growth happens. And it, and it sounds like each level sort of includes and, and then builds upon the level before. So if you're at level four, you can, you can meet, you know, you understand everything below that level, but you may not quite understand the level above going back to that idea of having a conversation you can't hear. Like if you're a level four primarily, it's hard to really hear the level five conversation. A useful metaphor is, uh, getting on an elevator. You can get on this elevator and go up to the second floor and live there, but have no idea uh, that there are floors above you. Mm. And you don't have any idea what the furniture looks like or the artwork or whatever, but you could live there. But what happens is if you get up to the top floor, notice, by the way, when you're on the top floor, your view is better. And uh, and, and so what happens is you want in, in the genius here of level five, those levels two, three and four are, are embedded within you. And so it's unlikely that level five that you're going to go back to level two or level three because you're going to say, nah, I'm not going to go there. But it is a continuum, though, right? Like where people can show up in different areas of their life at different levels, even if they have a center of gravity that's at a certain level. Yeah, that's the thing, though. Most and, and this has been studied pretty extensively. Uh, we do have a center of gravity and it's probably unlikely that we can spend any time at all at level five or four at level three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I mean, you may have a level five thought. I'm not going to say that, but it, to, to actually live there, it's, it's pretty hard. But yeah. let me just the, the genius here for level five and what makes them such transforming leaders. And I've seen this happen and I wish I had this on tape to show people, but I've had level five leaders go into a room of 200 people and actually talk to everybody in that room and not afraid to say, here's what's in it for you. <laughs> and he's, he's not afraid. He's not afraid to say that because there are people who are in their twenties, perhaps who are saying, Oh, that's the message I want to hear. Mm-hmm. But not afraid to talk about, not talking about teamwork or, you know, at level four values. The, the, the thing that makes them so great is they can, they can really reach a lot of people mm. with, with when, when they're in that situation because they can, they can understand where, um, people are coming from. That is, they can actually meet them where they are. I think one of the main points I'd like to make here is that in terms of leading people, it's so important to meet people where they are, right? It's not where you are, but it's where they are. And can you put yourself in their shoes and see it from where they've seen it? Where does where do people get trapped up with this, right? Because I think anyone listening to this is going to go, all right, Carl, I, I get it. I'm with you. Where where do they, how do you actually do it? Like, where do they go wrong? Where, where is it that people think they're doing it, but they're not really doing it? A lot of this has to do with the way you think about it, right? And uh, I'll just go back to saying that too many people, you know, it's, let's say I'm, I don't want to give an age, but a young person might say, you know, what's in this for me? And they'll never, ever <laughs> be able to meet someone where they are. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, and we actually, by the way, we actually know this, that you know, most of the most people who are, um, we'll call it psychologically damaged, mm-hmm. uh, don't have the ability to be empathic with others. Mm. And because that, by the way, to be really empathic is actually a level four. That is, you have to actually give up yourself, if you will, mm-hmm. to be with someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's a real talent. And, um, uh, you know, while empathy is a, is a, is a real hot topic today, 
you'd be surprised at how many, how many, how few people can actually really do it because they can't hold themselves at the same time and connect with others. Let's take someone who's who's very representative of uh, the the listener base of the show. So let's that's either like a, a leader in a company, sort of at the director VP level, or an entrepreneur running a startup, right? And they've got all the pressures of of an operational leader, right? Where they have they have to all the things they got to do, the numbers they got to make, but they're also someone who cares deeply about how we're getting there, not just where are we getting and are we hitting the numbers, but how are we doing it? What is this culture like? What is this environment like for people? How should someone in that situation? take this idea that you're, you're presenting to them and actually like put it into their day-to-day work. Like what, what does it look like to live, to start to do this? What are the, the practices, the rhythms, the, the weekly cadences to do this? Yeah, I, I think, let me just start uh, where we like to start in our programs is getting people to identify what their values are. Okay. What's most important to them. We work really hard in getting them to identify again, not values that they have, but values that they own. Hmm. And the most important thing they can do, by the way, is convey those values. It's not enough <laughs> to actually own those values. You have to be able to uh, talk about them. Mm-hmm. Show them how they work in practice. It's really a fascinating part because this is one of those areas that when you start articulating your values, you will find times when you won't be able to live up to those. Mm-hmm. Or there will be another value that will compete with that value. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing is that you're able to, to then, if you made a mistake, to apologize and to say, this is how I made this mistake. This is why I made this mistake. These were the competing values. And I, I, I went the wrong direction here. I, I did the wrong thing. And here's the thing. People who work for you, if they know that you are your values, they will cut you a break. <laughs> you know what? Oh, he meant to do the right thing. It didn't work out well. Let's go get him again. Yep. The person who's constantly putting his finger up to the wind and figuring out which way that wind is blowing, right? These kind of mistakes stick with you your whole career, hmm. right? Because people won't let them go. I'm trying to think here about, you know, if most people are at level three and really this, this trend, like that three to four transition is the key bit. And, and you go through this much more in the book. So, so definitely check that out if you're listening to this and interested in, in this transition. But it, it seems like one of the key challenges for someone to take on in that transition is vulnerability, right? Is to, is to own, own the mistake and to be human about like, Hey, I screwed up there and to, to own, to, to actually be upfront and own that and, and be, come out with that to people. Does that match what you see in practice? Oh, absolutely. See, what happens is you're you're no longer you're no longer in that need to prove yourself. Mm-hmm. You've already been there, and you can make those mistakes now because you know you're human. And that vulnerability, I, I can't, this is one of the great paradoxes of leadership. <laughs> is that love a good paradox? It, it's actually when you have the most influence as a leader, it's not when you're in control. Or when you have the most control, it's when you're vulnerable. Why is that? Andrew, this is a very philosophical point here. Okay. But I think we're, I think we, you and I and your, and your audience, we're more connected through our frailties than are through our strengths. Mm. We're at our best when we're under siege. 
That's a really interesting idea. It's the idea that the rough edges that give people a place to connect with you. Speaking to my own developmental journey, like I remember how often I tried to, you know, always appear like I had it all together, never let them see a sweat or it's like that idea of trying to show up in this perfect way. But one, one, one time somebody said to me, they were like, you know, when you show up like that, I don't know what I'm doing here because there's nothing for me to contribute. And, and what they were saying to me was, if, if you have it all together, which I didn't, by the way, there was no space for them to contribute, to connect, to come together. And by the way, uh, these are the same people that are afraid to come to you. Your people are your early warning system <laughs> for, for, for things that are coming down that you may not even be aware of. Okay, very quickly, this is, I think it was one of my first classes I ever taught, and I was way too young to be doing this. But I remember, it's a small class, it was a leadership class, and what we were doing is we had a case, and the students had to talk about their interpretation of the case, right? And so, I don't know, it was the third third week of the class, whatever, and so the student who hadn't said anything the entire semester gives his analysis of this case. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God, is this good? Not only is it good, I think it's better than mine. <laughs> I said, I've been working on this thing. This is good. And so I remember vividly thinking, how do I handle this? Hey, cause I'm, I'm a professor. I'm all knowing, all wise. And so I, I and so what happened was it's very embarrassing, but, um, I took him out. <laughs> you know, I, I, I said, this is what's wrong with your case. This is why you shouldn't do that. I, mean, I went on and on and on. I was just, oh, wow. Just ripped. And it was great because as I was doing that, I had enough wherewithal to look around the room and see guys with their heads down thinking, I'm never going to talk. I'm never going to bring up something like this. Yeah. Uh, the women in the class. Like, I'm never scattered. speaking again. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it was, it was, I had completely lost the class. Hmm. But guess what? I was under, I had the most control. Hmm. And again, again, this was, this was so profound at that time that I actually, when I, at the end of the class, I stopped, I basically stopped the class and apologized. I said, you know, Jim here didn't really did a great case. I'm, I'm really sorry I, that I, that I took him out like this. I was a little nervous. I, I thought actually his analysis was better than mine. And I, I didn't want to be put in that situation where I was going to have to, uh, you know, just say how great this case was. And I said, I'll never do this again. What happened then? Well, what happened was amazing. By the way, at the end of the class, people in their written comments say this is one of the best leadership examples we've ever had or we've ever seen, where someone was able to, to acknowledge a mistake in a class and apologize to that other student. What was that like for you, though? Like, what did that feel like? And what were you, what was going through your head as you were like, I, mean, I imagine you were grappling with this, like, do I say something? Do I not? Do I, you know, what was that like for you? Well, I, I just, I, I went with it. I went with what I thought I needed to do because I, I know I had lost a class. And I didn't know enough to know. I had no idea how it was going to turn out. But that that's what happens. That's what happens when we're vulnerable like that, though. You don't know. But that's the genius. Okay, one more story. America's Got Talent. Yeah. That show had this one element that blew me away, which was they would always go backstage first before the performer would come out. And that performer was sweating. That perf That performer was nervous. That performer, and then you're saying, oh, my gosh, they're going to fail. They're not going to be able to sing. And this is them at their most vulnerable right there talking to them, to these, you know, the producers. Mm -hmm. You're never going to be able to do this. Of course, they win the show. It's a Bravo performance. You know, everybody's going crazy because they're so good. And I'm thinking to myself, how about that? You know why they were so good? No, their talent was obviously there. But you know what? People saw that vulnerability in them. And what they were able to overcome. 
Yeah. To be able to go out on that stage. And they're thinking to themselves, oh my gosh, he goes through this every time he goes out on the stage. He's that nervous. He's that, he's that unsure of himself. He's not going to be able to do it. And, and, and what we end up doing is we end up uh, in some ways, in our own way, celebrating that we give them a hit. We give our votes to him. When we have kids, the same thing. We can't believe our kids are so nervous before they go out and do a play that they'll never be able to do it. And of course they do it great. And what do we do? We applaud that. Now, what do we do for ourselves? Do we willing to be vulnerable? No. See, the very thing that we see in others that we, we appreciate, we laud them, that when it comes to ourselves, we're not willing to be vulnerable. Yeah. It's a strange phenomenon. Yeah. But I've never met a leader who was remembered, who was not also vulnerable with his or her people. Wow. That is the heart of it right there. Going back to your point about uh, vulnerability, it's like, all the all the juice is when you show up not knowing what the outcome is going to be, and you fully show up anyway. That's it, right? And you're like open, and you're fully there. Those are the moments I remember. Right, right. Those are the moments that punctuate the equilibrium and say, "Oh, this just got interesting." What people don't understand is that is your strength is going out and doing it. Yeah, that's like the strength and vulnerability. That's the strength. There's no weakness. Everybody. That's the problem. You know, in the business world, vulnerability implies weakness. Yeah. Oh, you're, yeah. No, 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 no. You know, you have someone who's level four, level five being vulnerable. That's coming from a spot of strength, not weakness. Yeah. It takes enormous strength to show up that way. Absolutely. And to go into a situation where we don't know the outcome and in finding our legs <laughs> and being able to do what we need to do. And what happens is, is that these are the kind of risks that grow us, that make us stronger. You know, it reminds me of a story told by a man I was very lucky to have the opportunity to study with uh, briefly. My last semester of college, I was really, really lucky to get to take a class with Warren Bennis, hmm. who is, you know, one of the, the titans of leadership thinking ever, basically. And I just remember this class, right? And he, at the time, he, I mean, he was pretty old. This was, this was like two years before he passed. I remember he would, he would come into class and it was just like going to class with Yoda because he would, he would do this thing where someone would ask him a question. And even if it seemed like to everyone in the class, you know, we're all a bunch of juniors and seniors in college and we're all kind of a little bit high on our own supply. <laughs> someone would ask a question to Dr. Bennis. You could tell like a third of the class thought that was a good question. A third of the class was kind of on the fence and a third thought that was the dumbest thing ever. How did you just waste this, this prolific human's time? But no matter what the question was, he would do this thing where he would just like, he would just like close his eyes and he would just go, hmm. And he would kind of like rock back and forth a little bit. And you just see like the wheels turning and you would just, everyone would suddenly be on the edge of their seat. Like, what is, what is going on in his head? What is he about to say? And no matter what, he would always give it that respect, the question. But it reminds me of the sto a story he told us. I think on, it might have been the first time we ever met him. And it was about his own experience and, and the high level here relating to what, what yeah. where this is going is he talks about um, one of his big ideas is the idea of crucible moments. And these are the ideas like a crucible. I think, I think might've been, I heard you talk about this where a crucible is something designed to hold um, metal while it's purified, like molten metal while it's purified. And it's like, if you apply that to a person, that's what these moments are. They're, they're holding you in contradiction while your stuff is being purified. Uh, actually, that's a Richard Rohr thing from, his, from that book, again, Falling Upward. <laughs> anyway, so he, he told us a story about one of his first crucible moments. He was sent to Europe, I believe, in World War II as an officer. And he was like really young. I mean, he was like 21 or 22 or something like that. And he just shows up. He's this fresh officer, you know, super green, drops into a theater, and he takes over a unit. 
who's been in theater for a while. So these guys are all, you know, they've been through it together. They're all tight. And he, he told this story about the vulnerability. And this is where he talked about the vulnerability of showing up and admitting where he didn't, he didn't know. So he thinks he's got to walk in here and like have it all together. Right. He's like, right. this is a unit I'm taking over. We're, we're in the middle of a war zone and like they need, you know, I got to show up and pretend like I got it all together. And he's, he tells the story where he's sleeping the first, like his first night there. And they're in some like drafty old farmhouse in, you know, France or something. And he's, he's sleeping on the floor of, of this thing with, with most of the men. And, and uh, he hears one of the men in his unit talking to the senior sergeant. They think he's asleep, but he's not. And he can hear him. And he hears the younger soldier say to the, the senior sergeant, oh, is that the new lieutenant? And the sergeant's like, yeah. And Warren's like holding his breath. He's like, oh, God, what, what are they about to say? <laughs> and then the, the, the younger, the young corporal, who's like maybe a year younger than, than Warren at this time, you know, the guy, they're all roughly the same age, goes, oh, good. We really need one. But the thing that really changed for him was the next day when he had heard that, he instead of showing up the way he was going to show up, which was like pretending he had it all together and kind of pomp and circumstance and this whole thing, he was totally open with them. And he just like, he said, look, I'm new here and you're not. Like you've all been together and I'm the one who just showed up. And he, he openly admitted, he said like, I'm going to lean heavily on the sergeant to help me do the best job for you I can. And so the, the way he suddenly opened this up and was vulnerable with them of like admitting, yeah, I'm the new guy, even though I'm, you know, quote, in charge here. Just that that image of like him lying on the farmhouse floor. I don't know. I, I think I'll never get that out of my head. That's a great story. And in fact, those crucible moments in our programs that we do, we actually have people fill out a lifeline where we have them put their crucible moments. We call them landmark events, but they're crucible moments. We have them put these uh, crucible moments on this lifeline. Two things surprised me about this exercise, really. One is that you find out that these crucible moments end up being moments that actually grow you. And the fact that Dr. Bennis still remembers that was more likely a cru it was a crucible moment for him. And think about the crucible moments that we've all had in our lives. The amazing thing about it is the amount of detail you can remember mm -hmm. about that, about those moments. I mean, you know what people were wearing. It's like time slows down and you remember every detail. Every detail you remember. But, but those, those, those events actually end up corresponding to our leader level model because those end up being the moments that change us, change the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about other people. Yeah. And here's the thing. When I ask people about crucible moments or, or landmark events and I actually tell them, okay, no, I want the, I want the best ones. I want the, the landmark events in your life that were very good. Very positive, very negative, right? Mm -hmm. And then once they do that, I ask them of these positive events or negative events, which ones are the, which ones change you the most? It's always the negative ones, right? It's always, it's as close to anything I've ever done. It's universal because you know what it's done is it broke something in us. It broke our addiction to seeing the world in a particular way. And now it's different. I want to go ahead and kind of close out here with a couple of rapid fire questions. They're again, they're short questions. Your answers don't have to be, but what would you have someone listening to this start asking themselves to move forward in this in the direction you're pointing? I would ask the question, what's needed from you right now that only you can deliver on? What's being asked of you? Besides the luminaries we've talked about of Bob Keegan and, and Richard Rohr, who or what has had a really big influence on you and, and shaped how, how you see things, how you show up? 
Oh, I have, I have to tell you, I've been, I've been really blessed with great people in my life. My mother and father were great. <laughs> uh, they were, in fact, I mean, they were unbelievable. And I, I, I never actually had a chance to say this before, but they were so much, and I don't even know if this was intentional. I wish they were around for me to ask them this, but they, they always allowed me, uh, to pursue my dreams. Mm. You know, there was, there was nothing like you should do this, you should do this, whatever. And, um, there was, it was pretty remarkable. Um, I have two older brothers, very influential in my life. I, again, I, I didn't have the wherewithal, uh, to even understand this probably until I was 40, but how value driven they were. I mean, I actually got mm -hmm. to see people who actually lived their values, <laughs> you know, then just, you know, I have those. No, 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 no. They, they, they were all in. And so, uh, the people throughout my life, uh, who have been, you know, that way with me. Mm, there we go. Thank you for sharing that. If you think back just in recent memory, and whether that's whether recent memory is a week or maybe it's a year or two, what's a small change you've made that has had a big impact on either how you do what you do or how you show up? But small change, big impact. See, the thing that comes to mind, uh, uh, not sure, uh, not sure I want to talk about it, but and I think people can appreciate this is um, I'm more of an introvert by nature, and so. You know, if I, if I have a, a day full of meetings, I, I pretty much like to just chill out. And I got into this bad habit of, of coming home and chilling out <laughs> and, and really not spending as much time talking to my wife <laughs> as I should have about her day. Right. Cause of course my day was terrible and I got that. that, that and, I, and again, and so I said, okay, Carl, here's what you're going to do. I mean, I literally, this is one of those developmental things that I do with a, with a friend. Right. And I said, listen, what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come home and I'm going to take 30 minutes and I'm going to listen. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to listen. I'm going to ask questions. How's your day? What's going on? I don't care how small the detail was. I was going to ask about it or whether I cared about it or not. I was going to ask the question and I was going to have this conversation. And again, just to be truthful about this, I had a hard time making 30 minutes um, initially. Hmm. I was more like 10 minutes, five minutes, eight minutes. You know, then I got up to 15, 20. And then I realized after a while, uh, that they were now turning into an hour. And what I found was that it made a big difference in our relationship. That's awesome. And so small step in the direction that I needed to take and uh, I had to practice it. And I had no idea, by the way, that it was going to have the impact it did. Thank you for sharing that. Your book is The Map. We've been talking about it all episode. We'll link to all of this in the show notes and, and also to your, your site and your work where everyone can check that out. But Carl, first of all, thank you for being here and for sharing your stories, your experience, your wisdom. It's been a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> but is there anything else you'd like to leave the listener with or that you want people to uh, reach out to you about? I'll leave it with my uh, that favorite quote from uh, a general who said, you know, it's not about us. It's about all of us. And so when we think about when we think about doing something, we have to understand it's just not not necessarily about the team. It's about the organization. What's in the best interest of that organization? And, and to think uh, much more holistically about the things that we're in and, and seeing what we can make sense of that. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Carl, and uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Andrew. Take care of yourself. Be good. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them.
We'll see you soon.